Leviticus chapter 25. Let's just jump right in. Beginning with verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying... Now, I want to, I want to pause right there. I know we didn't get very far. Eh, that's how things kind of roll. But the reason I want to stop here is that verse 1, like, buried in these words, is a detail... That when you fully understand it, it places, interestingly enough, not just this chapter, but the remaining two afterwards, into a really interesting and I think profound context. Yes, verse 1 tells us a lot about the closing of the book of Leviticus. Now, if you recall back Leviticus 1, verse 1, the whole book opened this way. Now, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, Saying, now, now up until this point, God and Moses, they've been having this conversation on top of Mount Sinai. Transitioning from Exodus to Leviticus, that dialogue moves. Moves from Sinai down to this newly finished tabernacle of meeting centered there in the midst of the camp. Now what's fascinating about not only Leviticus 25, but you'll also notice the same detail at the close of chapter 26, as well as the close of chapter 27, is the location of this conversation that's happening between God and Moses appears to shift. You notice it. It shifts back from the tabernacle to Mount Sinai. So we have to ask right from the beginning, why the scene shift? And what does it mean, if anything, really? Now, the immediate challenge that I found, I found when it came to answering this particular question was that in my own studies of this passage, not one, commentator, not one commentary I read or commentator I listen to even mentions the detail, <laughs> yet alone attempts to present any type of rational explanation for it. Not one Bible study I listen to even points out a shift in location or even slightly curious about it. Now, it's true, Moses' interactions with God were never limited to just one place. And that's a truth. That's something that you'll find if you continue reading from Leviticus into Numbers, Numbers into Deuteronomy. God and Moses are having a conversation that's not really limited to any one physical place. But what makes this detail, Leviticus 25 verse 1, so interesting, engrossing to me, is that there's no evidence that God ever spoke from Mount Sinai after indwelling the tabernacle. Now, now what that seems to indicate is that part of God's conversation with Moses, recorded for us in Leviticus 25, 26, and 27, actually came before the 24 chapters where God speaks from the tabernacle. So here's the question. Why are these chapters presented at the end of Leviticus and not probably where they should be chronologically back in Exodus. Again, God speaking from Mount Sinai. Now, I have a theory. And I must reiterate, it's only a theory. So kind of bear with me. Regarding the New Testament, we understand the New Testament to be a compilation of what? 27 books written by eight different authors. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke also writes Acts. You have John who aside from his own gospel, also penned three letters to the church, wrote the book of Revelation. You have James and Jude, who were half-brothers of Jesus, the Messiah. Peter, the Apostle Peter, wrote two letters to the church. And then you get 13 epistles written by the Apostle Paul. The book of Hebrews, I think, written by Paul. But it's the only book of the, of the New Testament where there's any type of, of questions concerning authorship. Now, while these books were already universally accepted by the church as being divinely inspired scripture, in order to specifically address some fringe writings that were heretical in nature, in 328, uh, 382 AD, excuse me, these 27 books already in circulation, already accepted, were officially canonized by the church during what was known as the Council of Rome. So during the Council of Rome, there was these heretical books in circulation to discard those. They canonized the 27 that were already accepted scripture. They didn't pick and choose. They canonized. Now, I bring that up because a similar dynamic also existed concerning the Old Testament. 
You might not have even known that. The Old Testament. It's made up of 39 books. And these 39 were also, like the New Testament, universally accepted as being divinely inspired and were already generally in circulation. And yet, during the rise of, yes, heretical writings and teachings, following the Babylonian exile, that an official canonization of the Old Testament and a one singular collection was necessitated. Now, it's difficult to pinpoint the exact date that the canonization of the Old Testament occurred. But there is ample evidence, as a matter of fact, I contend and would argue, that a man by the name of Ezra, who was instrumental in leading the Hebrew people back from their exile to the Promised Land, as well as ushering in a spiritual revival, that it was Ezra that spearheaded the important task of canonizing our Old Testament. To this point, one author writes the following. The idea of a finalized Hebrew canon first began to emerge shortly after the Babylonian exile. The primary reason for the final compilation of the sacred Aaronic writings into an authoritative canon of Scripture was to combat an insidious counterfeit system of worship that was arising out of Samaria during this time period. A few quick side points before I get to my theory. First, Aside from the Jewish Talmud, or the Jewish authorities, both Jesus, as well as the New Testament authors, definitively affirm that Moses was the primary author slash compiler of the Torah. So the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Hebrew scholars believe it was Moses, Jesus affirms it was Moses, the New Testament writers affirm it was Moses. Two, because Deuteronomy 34 records the death of Moses, there's no question that an additional editor was involved at some point in time to complete the record. That's just logical. Thirdly, while we can't say who added that final chapter, and I think it's probably likely Joshua, his protege, it is believed, though, that the ultimate organization of Moses' writings into five separate volumes, occurred post-Babylonian exile during the final compilation and canonization of the Old Testament. Meaning this, for centuries, the Torah, the first five books, didn't exist as five books, but were largely one singular work of Moses, with the divisions coming during the canonization process. Now lastly, as a student of Scripture, there is an interesting hermeneutical tool that you can use in order to uncover, in your own studies, deeper level of meaning behind particular texts. And here's, here's the rule. It's always important, yes, to consider what is being articulated in a text. And that's the baseline. Like, what's God saying here? That's true. But it's an entirely different exercise, aside from asking what's being articulated, to consider why it was necessary for God to articulate it. Like nothing is said or placed into your Bible on accident. So here's my theory. And again, I repeat, it's only a theory. I believe when compiling the ancient scriptures and canonizing the Old Testament, Ezra, moved by the Holy Spirit, intentionally decided to move these three chapters from their chronological placement somewhere in Exodus to the end of Leviticus. And he did this for a really interesting thematic purpose. So, so why would Ezra do such a thing? While the evidence suggests that God indeed spoke these words to Moses, 25, 26, and 27, before he said anything from the tabernacle, because of the location Mount Sinai, these final three chapters present a perfect postscript for Jews who happen to be reading Leviticus after returning to the land of promise from experiencing the judgment of God for a failure to obey any part of Leviticus. Ezra's like, you guys need to see something here. At the, th There's a bit of a postscript necessary. You guys blew it. 
I need you to hear something. As we work our way through these chapters in the next couple weeks, in addition to unpacking what God says in the moment, I'm also going to take a moment or two to address, I think, the interesting application Ezra's placement would have for those reading these chapters from a post-exile, post-judgment, post-God's wrath perspective, because I think you find a lot of grace. Well, verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest, you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you, your male and female servants or employees, your hired men, the strangers who dwell with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. Now regarding the Sabbath day, we understand that God intentionally structured a week whereby his people would work hard, yes, for six days, and then rest well on the seventh. Not only did God model this for his people in creation, working six, resting on the seventh, but what's fascinating about that is he actually institutes or established a week as a, a delineation of time, a measurement. It's kind of odd. Calendars revolved around lunar, around other things, and yet we have this arbitrarily set seven-day period of time as a week. There's no explanation for the development of that other than a divine intervention, a.k.a. God. So we have this Sabbath day. Work six days. Rest on the seventh. Good deal. I like that. I like resting, napping, chilling out. Beyond this weekly day, and also, I should mention, a calendar that was structured a, around seven festival vacations or big parties that people were to have. These were all recorded in Leviticus 23. Now in chapter 25, God extends the Sabbath concept from uh, its weekly manifestation to now a yearly context. Upon their arrival to the land of promise, and, and you'll note God specified that, they're in the wilderness going from Egypt to the promised land. But upon their arrival, according to these verses, the people were to work the land for six years, but then allow the land to rest during the seventh for the whole 12 months. Ultimately, the purpose for this Sabbath year was as follows. First, the land itself needed a reset. If you're a note taker, you can just kind of jot that, that down. The land needed a reset. Like in this passage, the seventh year is described as literally being a solemn rest for the land. The people were encouraged to work hard, work the land for six years. But on this seventh, every seventh, the work was to cease. No farming at all. No vineyards. Twelve months. Take a vacation. Do nothing. And allow the land to rejuvenate itself. Scientifically, we recognize that there is an incredible amount of value and wisdom in this idea. Since nutrients comes from the soil, healthy crops demand healthy soil. Today, we don't take a year off, but we have things like, like crop rotations and fertilization that ensures healthy harvests coming from healthy soil. There's no need today to leave the land fallow one year and in, in, in seven. So the, the land needed to reset. Secondly, the livestock needed to recharge. You know, aside from the practical benefits of allowing the land a chance to reset, to rest, there's this uh, pragmatic blessing. And letting the animals, by the way, animals you use to till the soil, to harvest the crops, an opportunity to kind of recharge as well. It kind of give your tractor a break, you know. You've been riding the tractor too long. Give the tractor a break. 
Let it also rest. And so you have the land, you have the livestock. Thirdly, though, you had the workers who needed to relax. Like, I mean, really, think about this for a moment. Like, how, how gnarly of an idea would it be if you go to a job interview and they're like, listen, we do things really different here. Um, this is what we do. We, uh, we ask you to work uh, six days a week. And we insist on a seventh day off. But to kind of counteract that, every seventh year, we, we, we shut down entirely. And you get an entire year paid vacation. Like, that's kind of a mind-blowing idea, right? Twelve months, paycheck. Think about the honeydew list. Like, what you could accomplish. Now, we might think in our modern context that such a notion is nuts. But God's economy... This was a fundamental, fundamental pillar. Not only did God say, every seventh day, take it off. Not only did he say, there's seven parties I want you to enjoy all year. Three big vacations are mandatory. But then he's like, work six years, and that seventh year, don't do anything. Unbelievable. Every seventh year, the land, the livestock, and the workers were to rest. Finally, the owner needed to remember. Again, if you're jotting things down, the owner needed to remember. Remember what? That he didn't own the land. That he was just a steward of the land. In, in verse 23, and, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but God will be clear that the land, well, the land was his. And therefore, the increase of that land was his responsibility. The owner needed to remember that. In fact, God was so serious they keep this Sabbath year that he promises to yield a triple portion in year six, specifically to cover the losses you would incur in years seven, eight, when you would have to replant, and then nine if necessary. Look at verse 18. Let's skip a few verses. I, I want to place this in context. God continuing, he says, <coughs> you shall observe my statutes, keep my judgments, perform them, and you will dwell in the land in safety. The land will yield its fruit. You will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. And if you say, God knows us well, right? What shall we eat in the seventh year? Like if we really do this, God, if we obey you and we follow these commands, if we perform them, if we actually take the seventh year off, what shall we eat in the seventh year? That's not a, a bad question. It's a good question. God even acknowledges it. Adding, since we don't sow or gather. Well, the Lord continues. He says, then I will command to answer you. I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year. And it will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year. Until its produce comes in, you shall eat of the old harvest. Now think about that for a moment. God sets up. This Sabbath year. And, and the way that he does it is that he promises to yield a triple portion in the sixth year. Don't miss that. God is asking his people to trust him in a seventh year. Don't work in the seventh year. Take the seventh year off. Trust me. I've got you. He asked them to trust him in a seventh year after he's provided a threefold increase in year six. Don't miss that idea. This, this to me is, is revolutionary. Like practically, it would be like God coming to you and saying, hey, listen, Chad, I want you to take an entire year off of work. And Chad's like, yeah, the God, that, that, uh, that's probably really not going to work with our with our finances that's going to really set us back and God's like no 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 like, don't, don't miss me I want you to take all of next year off of work you got to have faith in me you got to trust me here I'm going to go ahead and give you a check for the entire year will you trust me you see what he does he asks you to trust him for the seventh year after he already has given you everything you need in year six now, the sad thing is that there is no record the children of Israel ever obeyed the Sabbath year when they came into the land. Zero evidence they ever did it. 
Like God establishes a system where they get to take a year off in an act of faith after God's yielded a threefold increase in the sixth year and they never once obeyed. Now why? Like doesn't that seem nuts to you? If God advances your salary for next year and is like, hey, I trust me to provide, after he's already given you the salary for next year and you don't do it, you got to like kind of be scratching your head like, what's my problem? It's interesting. Now, there are some who will point to fear. Fear as being the reason that people don't give faithfully. They're afraid. I might not have enough. What if I don't make it? You know, I don't give. Because I'm, if they're honest, I'm really not so sure God can be trusted to take care of my needs. I just don't know. So some people will point to fear. The truth, though, is I don't buy that. I don't buy it at all. I mean, right from the beginning. Like, what kind of God do you actually believe in that's apparently either unwilling or unable to take care of your needs? He's not a very good God at all. Kind of a terrible God. I'm convinced that a lack of giving, it's not fear. In fact, I think it has a much more sinister driver. That's what the text tells me. Ask yourself the question. Why would Israel fail to take the seven year off when God yielded a threefold increase in the sixth? There's only one rational explanation. It's greed. It was their desire for more that robbed them of the blessings that God was wanting to provide in the seventh year. God sanctioned taking a year off, providing the increase in advance. And what did the people do when they got this threefold increase in year six? And they're sitting there like, well, I mean, we could take the year off. Or... We could just, you know, have more. Like, they took the increase and just kept working. You know, the grand irony of greed is that it always teases something it can never provide. And it robbed the people of the blessings of the seventh year. I'm convinced greed for more. And not a fear of less really is the core driver behind many people's lack of generosity. Like structurally, God sets things up how? He sets things up whereby he yields an increase. And what does he ask us to do of the increase? Give a first fruits. And yet, to be honest, when it comes to writing a check, what is it that holds you back? Let me speak for my own life. We got a big tax return this year. More than normal. That's what having kids does. And the Lord was putting it on our hearts to to tithe off of it. But it was going to be a substantial amount. And as I'm working on this very Bible study, I'm not kidding. I had my checkbook and I'm like, that's a lot of money. And what do you start thinking about? It's not fear, because God's already given an increase. I'm just giving off the increase. It's not fear. What is it? Man, what we could do with all that money. Oh, we could buy this. We could do that. We could spend a few extra days at the beach. We start thinking about about what we could buy. God yields a harvest. But we fail to experience the blessing of the seventh year because we're greedy. Uh, Close my story. I did write that check. (laughs) I was like, I can't preach this Bible study if I'm not obedient to this. It's in the offering box. You know, I will will add, and, and this is something that really expounded my perspective in a way that I hadn't seen before. But I think that that idea, God yields threefold and it's like give off of it. I don't need you to trust me. I yielded. I want you to give first fruits off of what I yielded. 
that idea, I think, explains why God uses such strong language when it comes to our failure to give of the first fruits of his increase. Like to the point that in Malachi, God goes so far as to say a failure to give of your first fruit, your tithe, is akin to robbing him. Robbing him. Now, why would that be God's perspective? Here's why. Don't miss it. Your tithe shouldn't be given hoping to receive something in return from the Lord. In fact, you would have it completely backwards. You see, your gift should be given in response and proportion to whatever God has already given in the sixth year. It's why it's called a first fruit. It's given in response to a harvest. Christian, God is not asking you and I to give an offering of the first fruits of the harvest and then trust that he'll provide for our needs. In contrast, God faithfully provides for our needs and the giving back of the first fruits is our way of acknowledging that. Like understand, the one thing that will always manifest when you give of your first fruits and obey the commands of the Lord concerning giving is what we find illustrated in a seventh year. Rest. And blessing. Most interestingly, this is also the thing that greed robs people of. Rest or blessing. You know, their failure to take the Sabbath year, I actually think, another theory, that every sixth year, God yielded a triple blessing hoping they would obey the seventh year. And they never did, which is why God's like, you robbed me. I was always good on my end. And you never, ever, ever obeyed me. It was that. It was the seventh year why God ripped them from the land and sent them into exile. God judged them harshly because of the seventh year. Verse 8, let's go back. And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years. And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all of your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year, and proclaim liberty throughout all of the land to all of its inhabitants, it shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. And it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, neither, sh neither gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is the jubilee, it shall be holy to you, you shall eat its produce from the field. It's worth pointing out, amongst other things which we're about to get to, the year of jubilee was also another Sabbath year. So the 50th year, every 50th year was another Sabbath year following the customary Sabbath year, or the 49th year. So every 7th year was a Sabbath year, so the 49th year is also a Sabbath year, but the 50th is a Sabbath year. The point? is that on year 48, God provided an increase, not just to cover 49, not just to cover 50, but 51 and 54 years. God would provide and take care of his people. Verse 13, in this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. That, that word possession would be better translated his property, his family land, his inheritance. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another or do wrong to someone to treat them poorly. According to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. According to the number of years, you shall increase its price. And according to the, number, uh, the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price. For he sells to you according to the number of years of the crops. Basically, the evaluations of everything, of something evaluations of what something was worth were made in this system according to the number of years before the next jubilee. This will make sense in a moment. 
Therefore, God concludes the section, you shall not oppress one another. You shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. There's no question that of all the unique aspects to the way that God's nation was to function. And don't forget, that's what Leviticus is about. He's liberated them from Egypt. He's led them to Sinai, gave some instructions there, comes down, tabernacle. God's ordering his nation. They're a group of slaves. He's forming them, creating them, a new people, before they get to their promised land. And God's creation and formation of the nation, the Constitution, so to speak, this idea here, the year of Jubilee, is without question the most revolutionary. Like, in fact, you would be hard-pressed to find anything remotely close to this concept presented in any other religious order, world culture, or economic system. This is not capitalism or communism. It's jubilee. Now, on the 50th year, following these seven sets of Sabbath years, so after 49 years, on the 10th day of the seventh month, or if you remember, this would be the Day of Atonement, from the tabernacle, the trumpet would sound out. Now, this trumpet, this word trumpet, it's, it's, it's a different word. It's literally the shofar, the ram's horn would blast, officially ushering in a jubilee throughout all of the land. Instantly, in one moment, with the blast of that trumpet, a one-part economic, two-parts social justice tsunami would ensue. Because the year of Jubilee occurred every 50th year, in God's design, it was basically something that would happen once in a generation. At some point in your life, in everyone's life, Jubilee would occur, ushering in a complete and total economic and social resetting. In verse 10, we're told the blast of the trumpet, quote, proclaimed liberty throughout all of the land and to all its inhabitants. Like, consider what Jubilee would look like in our modern context. Let me play that out for you. Every 50 years, all money's owed. Any money you owed to anyone or any institution was forgiven. And the blast of that trumpet, no matter the amount, if you found yourself in the servitude of another for financial reasons, Jubilee wiped away the debt, setting you free. If, let's say, you racked up a hefty balance on your Discover card. You know, none of you, I know y'all are all financially responsible, but let's just say, like other people, they have credit card debt. Jubilee, zero. The balance, gone. If, let's say, you'd been struggling to pay off that student loan with that job you got with your liberal arts degree with a minor in mid-15th century Chinese architecture, you know, that's never paid off, when the year of Jubilee finally comes around, even student loans were forgiven. Something, you know, our bankrupt bankruptcy system doesn't address. Like, aside... Aside from this, Jubilee, it declared that all land in Israel would revert back to its original owner. Now, you don't know this yet in our travels through Leviticus. You won't know this until Numbers and then into Joshua. But once they arrive at the promised land, the land was broken into regions. And every tribe, again, Israel, his name was Jacob. He had 12 sons. They became tribes. These 12 sons, their family members, the 12 tribes of Israel were the descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob. That's how it all uh, connects. Everyone other than the Levites, who had their own unique deal with God, they were given a portion of the land. So every tribe given its own division. And within those divisions, there were more partitions based upon the families that made up those particular tribes. Everyone was given a chunk of land. It was part of God's design, part of God's plan. Every jubilee or every 50th year, the land was reset 
back to the original deeds, the original divisions, the original owners. What that meant is that it was impossible to actually sell a piece of land in Israel. Like at best, all you could really offer someone, let's say you were not game in farming. You're like, I don't want to farm, but my land can make me some money, and my neighbor's a pretty good farmer. At best, you could do would offer him a 49-year lease. Because on the 50th year, the deed automatically reverts back to the family. And again, the evaluation of the lease, well, it would be priced according to the number of years you could work the land and make money until the next jubilee rolled around. So if you were like 40 years from jubilee, you'd get more money from the lease. If you were like two years, hey, you want my land for two years? Obviously, you're paying less. God, knowing how things would work, structures things equitable. And the end note, that this system is established by God, and, and you find it in two places in the verses we read, to prohibit, and note the word, oppression. Like this refrain, you shall not oppress one another, it's repeated in verse 14, it's repeated in verse 17. Now, I know some of you are thinking, how does an economy function when there is an opposed expiration date to all loans, debts, and leases. How does that even work? The answer, you have an economy that is not fundamentally dependent upon loans, debts, and leases. How refreshing. Like the beauty of Jubilee was not that it eliminated everyone's debt, but that it deterred the accumulation of debt to begin with. Who would lend you money knowing it, it's going to get wiped out? Like the amount you loan someone had to be determined by their ability and willingness to pay you back before Jubilee. If you purchase land to expand your operation, the term had to be in proportion to the number of years left. In many ways, Jubilee was a large safety net aimed at protecting social order and equality. It was a check and balance. Everyone no matter what financial decision you made, had to be mindful of. And think about the end results of such a system. Like first, Jubilee, how refreshing. It gave everyone, at least at one point in their life, a big do-over. That was true. The extent, full scope of your mulligan depended on when you were born or when you reached adulthood in proximity to Jubilee. But the reset still happened nonetheless. Like, like, how awesome would it be in our system for everyone at some point to just be given a do-over? Like, I've made such a mess of my finances. Do, 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 do. All right. I'm not saddled with this forever. Like, I have a, a new beginning. Like, how, no matter how bad you blew it or how poor your financial decisions, at one point in your adult life, you were given a second chance. Everyone's given a do-over. Secondly, the brilliance of this model was Jubilee safeguarded against the development of generational debt. Like, no matter how terrible the financial choices were of your father, and no matter how terrible those choices had consequences, it wouldn't terminally affect your kid's future. Like, you might have blown it ruined it, lost it all, gambling. And yet, your kids are going to have a moment where they're freed from your choices. Again, Jubilee was a day where that man's wrongs were righted and his family was made whole again. Man, we had a great piece of land, Dad. And you squandered it at the ponies. I would have really loved to have had that as an inheritance. And it comes back. Thirdly, on the flip side to safeguarding against the formation of generational debt, and by extension, the development of a perpetual underclass of have-nots, Jubilee also prohibited the, con the consolidation of wealth among a few people. Like, you see this economic reset at the heart of Jubilee. It played both directions. Generational debt would be forgiven, 
but it also prohibited the development of generational wealth. Both were impossibilities. Fourth, and this ties directly into the, the previous point, but Jubilee barred the establishment of land barons in Israel. I mean, every 50 years, the deeds for all of the land within the borders instantly reverted back to the original owner. In the end, Jubilee was God's way of keeping a minority of people from owning everything and thereby oppressing a hopeless majority. Which really leads to the final point, ultimate purpose, for this entire setup. Like, in the end, think about it. What was Jubilee all about? It was God's way of keeping Israel from becoming Egypt. Like, Jubilee kept human greed in check. It maintained equality. It prohibited the oppression of people. Jubilee was important because it fostered an economic system that preferred human beings over material things. People over stuff. In fact, and you can kind of chew on this on your own, but the closer one got to Jubilee, the less stuff was worth. In way of application, I do feel inclined to say, especially since we find ourselves in a political se season where we've, we're watching sinful human beings on stage arguing about how the economy should best function in a sinful fallen world. It is the greatest comedy on TV, but it's where we are. But I should point out, and, and this is going to hit both sides, so brace yourself, God has endorsed neither socialism nor capitalism. Like, like God's ideal for the way that a human economy should function, it's called jubilee. You know, it's true. Our capitalistic system has unleashed the human entrepreneurial spirit in like a way that's never happened before. Like, America is the wealthiest country the world's ever seen. Free markets provide everyone an opportunity to blaze their own trail, to make a life for their family. And yet, let's be real. With the success of some, also is the misfortune of others. You can make a lot and lose a lot. You see, capitalism, it places no guardrails on greed. It rewards it. Like, inequality in our system is a real thing. I don't want to get political, but three men right now, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and Jeff Bezos, have $50 billion more dollars in wealth than the bottom half of all Americans. That's messed up. And aside from that, personal debt, our, our economic system's a facade, man. Personal debt's out of control. People are living beyond their means. In a system that requires poor people to take out loans to get jobs that will never repay those loans just to make a buck, something they can never escape, I think it's unjust. Now, other end of the spectrum, I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender. An argument can be made that the wealthiest country in the world that spent, you know, a trillion dollars conducting wars in Afghanistan and Iraq you know, maybe has enough money to have a health care system that's available, accessible, advanced, and free for its citizens. But on the flip side, taking from producers to support consumers is a recipe of disaster. I've been to Cuba twice. Socialism doesn't work. In fact, a critic of socialism once said at some point, the problem is you run out of other people's money. Like, this is what makes the year of Jubilee revolutionary, radical. It allows for economic freedom that's found in capitalism while also safeguarding against its tyranny. It keeps greed in check. Now, Jubilee, let's be real. We're never going to see that happen. Not with any of our presidential candidates, that's for sure. A platform of Jubilee might gain some traction, but we're probably not going to see it until Jesus returns. 
That said, what makes it so important, Jubilee, it's what it reveals to us about God. And the way that God wanted man to treat his fellow man. Like that's the important thing about Jubilee and the important consideration. Not like, hey, can we have an economy like this? No, no, no. It's what it tells me about God and about how God wants me to treat others. You see, at the core, the year of Jubilee was all about grace, wasn't it? It was all about second chances. Specifically for those that fundamentally didn't deserve it. I mean, you could run up a debt if someone would let you, and all would be forgiven every 50th year without you doing a thing. You didn't even have to file a form. And yet, this is what people miss about Jubilee. Something I'd never seen before until this passed through the text. But Jubilee was structured where you had God's grace. And it was grace to be given to man. But don't miss this. Also to be administered by man. And don't miss that point. Jubilee was a system designed by God to teach his people an important lesson about the nature of grace. You see, while grace is completely free to the person who receives it, grace is very costly to the person granting it. Like, imagine this trumpet blast of Jubilee. You know, not everybody was really excited about that. Like, in fact, there were those, as you can imagine, that had worked really hard for what they had. The achievers, the go-getters, the responsible, the successful, that were actually very perturbed when Jubilee came around. Why? Because it gave the losers and the lazy people and the debtors a second chance ultimately at their expense. Like in one moment, irregardless of personal choices, everyone was again on equal footing. Let's be real for a moment. How is that fair? The truth? It isn't. Like Jubilee wasn't fair. It didn't intend to be. Like, understand Jubilee was instituted by God to illustrate two very radical principles. Yes, the God of Israel was a God of second chances. That was glorious. In his economy, any debt could be forgiven no matter how large. Fresh starts could be granted. New beginnings made possible. Liberty was coming for all. And yet there was a second principle that God was illustrating through Jubilee. And that was the fact that these second chances, forgiven debts, fresh starts, new beginnings, and liberty didn't come without a cost. You see, while grace may be free, God's grace is far from cheap. <laughs> Enter Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus enters the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And he walks up, and we're told that he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and, and he opened the book, and he found a place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So here Jesus saying this to a group of people. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Leviticus language. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. It's another way of saying the year of Jubilee. So he closed the book. Gave it back to the attendant. Sat down. Everyone in the synagogue. Their eyes were fixed on Jesus. And he said to them. Today. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Yeah, amazingly, Jubilee was this generational event to happen every 50 years pointing to what? According to Jesus himself, to his work, to what he had come to do. You see, Jubilee was all about God's grace being administered to man by men who would incur the cost. As a man, Jesus came to do what? To forgive our debts, to grant us a fresh start, newness of life. Jesus came to proclaim liberty to the captive, to set 
free those who are in the bondage of sin. And while that, my friend, is a glorious reality for you and I, the receivers of such a thing that we couldn't do on our own, it's just given. Never forget, our jubilee cost Jesus, the man who gave it, everything. It's the only way it could happen. He gave his life. In closing, I'm going to place these things dealing with the Sabbath year and Jubilee into a different perspective. We're going to close by flipping this a little. Ministering during the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem, the prophet Jeremiah, he told the people in two different places that they were being ripped from the land, they were being removed, sent into exile. For a period of 70 years, twice, Jeremiah makes it clear, this would be for 70 years. Now what's interesting about this prophecy, aside from the fact that it's correct, is the, is the reality that it wouldn't be until many, many, many years later that the people would come to understand why it had been 70 years. Jeremiah is like, 70 years, we're gone. God's judging us for seven years. We'll be able to come back after 70 years. And the people, Jeremiah, they didn't know why 70, just that it was 70. But then in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 20 through 21, let me read you a section. The history of this period. We're told, And those who escaped from the sword Nebuchadnezzar carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she, the land, lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. You see, by the time Chronicles had been written, which is the recounting of Jewish history that's recorded in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, the people... They had come to realize that these 70 years that God had judged them, removed them, sent them into exile had occurred. Why? Because they had, they had failed to obey the Sabbath year specifically for a period of 490 years. You want to do the math on how many years they had failed to obey the Sabbath year? It was 70. It was 70. Jeremiah knew it would be seven. He didn't know why until much later. And you know <laughs> who is traditionally credited for penning Chronicles? Ezra. From my perspective, it's not an accident that a section of Scripture explaining the very cause of their judgment, a failure to obey the Sabbath year for 490 years, find itself intentionally intertwined with another message as well of jubilee, of second chances, and third chances, of God's grace. They'd blown it, suffered consequences, but God had still been faithful to bring them back, and he still had a plan. Jesus was still coming. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for the text.